0: Please join me in a prayer exercise. Put your hand on your heart and pray with me. Lord, you said that where our treasure is, there our heart would be also. In this Lenten season, align it with yours. That the things that we so often chase after or believe will bring us comfort. Father, cause them to fall away, that our heart would be more fully yours. Put your hand on your stomach. Lord, you told us also to love you with all of our soul. We admit that so often our deepest desires keep filling a hole that was made for you with so many other things. realign our wants, to be in line with our real needs, as you tell us what they are. Put your hand on your forehead. Father, we came to this place to learn how to think, to engage our mind in this aspect of our likeness and image-bearing. To be creative, imaginative, thoughtful, deep. Father, continue to renew us by the transforming of our minds. Fold your hands. Father, each aspect of our being was made to give you glory. We ask that what would be produced in our lives when pen goes to paper when hammer goes to nail when our wrists rest upon a steering wheel we take ourselves new places Father we ask that the work of our hands and what we produce would give you glory heart, soul mind, and strength. Amen. I don't know if when you were a kid, your parents reminded you every time Halloween came along that it wasn't really Halloween, it was Reformation Day. Mine did. Reformed families did that kind of stuff. In fact, when I was a little kid, I even remember at the beginning sort of the long conversation about whether or not we should be allowed to even go out trick-or-treating or or wear costumes because this isn't really Halloween. It's Reformation Day. And I remember going even to Reformation Day services. I remember the first time I was asked to preach at a Reformation Day service, and I remember feeling so conflicted. Like, is this an, an anniversary of the birth of the church or an anniversary of a funeral where we all sort of split off a bunch of different directions? And I didn't know what the tone was supposed to be in the middle of that. Were we supposed to celebrate the beginning of the Reformation, or were we supposed to be heart-stricken by the fact that it even happened? I mean, it was an acknowledgement that at a certain point in time and at times that have repeated itself over and over again, not only in the church, but in our own lives, a recognition and an acknowledgement that we've suffered from a serious case of mission drift. And the question I want to ask you this morning is, is the church lost? I mean, that's really what the question of the Reformation was all about. It's what the question we're still kind of asking now this semester in particular on why they're leaving and why it matters. Is one of the questions we have to ask is, is the church lost? Have we lost our way, lost our focus? And how does that happen? And if it does, how do you get it back? a screen grab of the question I asked you, if you were to ever stop going to church, it would be because 54% of you, because the church has problems. I don't have to tell you this, you've seen, you've walked away from church services frustrated before, you've had people within the church hurt you before, you've had the church probably look the furthest thing from Christ at different points, so you've seen it in different places around you. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. If you read publications like the ones I do, you'll be reminded over and over again that nowadays there are, what, 40,000 different denominations, that's what they say. I heard a recent corrective saying, well, that's not really true, because three-quarters of those 30,000 are actually just independent churches. I'm not sure I find that to be good news. The 30,000 churches found themselves to be so unique and so unable to get along with others that they couldn't even agree on making a denomination together. Is that really good news? I mean, if you were to take all the energy and time and attention that we have spent as Christians bickering with one another and piled that up, I mean, if you could have taken all of that energy and all of that mind power and channeled it in the direction of the Missio Dei, of the mission of God in the world rather than our infighting, How much more effective could the church not be? You see, you will have this in your own life in each and every relationship, not just between church and church or denomination and denomination, but between every single human being you will have this. Satan's great desire and temptation to steer us just a little bit off course by taking something that is so true and so right and so obvious and just sending it into confusion. The first lie the evil one ever told, if you eat of this tree, you will not surely die. God knows if you eat of this, you'll become like him. See, there's the lie already. We already were like him, made in his image, made in his likeness. Every sin we ever engage in moves us further and further away from that. Every time we split, every time we lose the ability to be powerful together as the body of Christ, we weaken ourselves. That's the irony of it. Every time we separate ourselves from someone who causes dissonance in our life, we think we're making our life easier. The problem is, chances are, we're moving ourselves further and further away from being refined into the likeness of Christ because we don't know how to live in that tension. And so our churches manifest this over and over again. And we don't know how to live in that space. So when I ask you this question, what one word would you use to describe your current church experience? We saw more negative words than we did positive ones. And I'm not going to argue with you. I think the church of Jesus Christ, the bride of Christ, needs a serious makeover. But not because the church as an institution is so broken, but because you and I are broken. That's what this season of Lent is for. We come back before the cross, we remind ourselves again and again and again, I am broken. I am the reason for the brokenness. I am the one who doesn't get along with everybody else. Wouldn't it be just like Satan to delight in the ability to distract us all and point the finger at somebody else? They're the reason my life isn't going any better. They're the reason we're not any happier. They're the reason our church isn't growing. They're the reason fill in the blank. So yeah, the bride of Christ needs a makeover, but that's not some institution that exists out there. That's what resides in here. It's my flesh. It's my heart of stone that needs to be softened again. So let's be honest with ourselves. The church has mission drift because I have mission drift. I need to let Christ in and refine me in all of those places one more time again. In our prayer time this morning, is cabinet. The question was asked by someone well, then what is the church for? I told him what we were talking about. Somebody else quickly answered to change the world. The answer's not wrong. The hands and feet of Christ are called to be the embodiment of his presence in the world. And his presence, if nothing else, changes and purifies, makes holy, makes beauty, brings things that are dead back to life again. That's what it does. It can't not do that. That is what the presence of God does. Yes, we get in the way of it. Yes, we can be discouraged by things we see in the church all around us. But if we read our Bibles right, we realize that every time somebody thought there wasn't room for God to do something in that moment, became an opportunity for God to shine the brightest. That it's in our brokenness that God has the greatest ability to be revealed. Maybe, just maybe, the greatest platform for the revelation of Christ in the church isn't when we feel the strongest, but when we're actually aware of how broken we really are. Does that sound like the gospel? Like every parable Jesus ever told about what surprises, what shows up in the minuscule, what shows up in the places where nobody knew how to look, what showed up in what everybody else was ready to write off and not count for anything. See, if we read these problems and these struggles right now through the lenses of Scripture and the story that we've known from beginning to end, it, might, it ought not to be cynicism that grabs us, but optimism. Because of every point of weakness comes an opportunity for God's strength. For every admittance, God, we cannot do this anymore on our own. I think the corners of God's ma- mouth start to turn upwards. And a smile, because there and in those moments, his children are ready again. When we reach the end of ourselves, we find the beginning of God, and that is the place where faith is made. Mission drift? Absolutely. But the opportunity for a mission to be truly found again? Absolutely-er. My favorite text that I come back to at the beginning of every Lent is this classic one from the Gospel of Mark in the 8th chapter. but merely human concerns. And he called the crowd to him along with his disciples and said, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it. But whoever loses their life for me and for the gospel will save it. Lent is the time when we remind ourselves again and again that we're building empires rather than participating in the inbreaking of a kingdom. Lent is the time when we remind ourselves that we aren't simply followers of Jesus but admirers of Him from a distance. Lent is the time when we remind ourselves again and again just how broken we really are so we stop pointing the finger at everybody else. Lent is the time when our hearts cry out again, I need a Savior. I don't deny myself, I indulge myself, and I'm not trying to form a life that is built on cruciform living, I'm trying to build the path of least resistance, and I'm not always trying to follow you, and I'm not trying to follow you in the hardest places, I'm often asking if you'd come along on the journey that I'm dreaming up, that's what this is for, Do you ever have this nagging feeling in your life that there's certain places where God's kind of knocking at the door and you're just sort of resisting Him? I have realized in my life thus far that every single time I've entered into a season where my faith is faltering, it's because God was pushing and wanting something and I was holding Him on the outside. I came across this cartoon again this week and it made me laugh. Don't let Him in; He'll change everything. Except I wasn't imagining a whole bunch of people inside of a church. I was imagining me on the inside of the walls of my heart. And my soul. And my mind and my strength. Oh, he's going to wreck everything. This is what it means to be a follower of Jesus, though. To be wrecked in the most perfectly way possible. To be wrecked in all the ways you didn't even know you needed to be wrecked. To have your dreams and ambitions taken and washed in the blood of the Lamb and given back to you in something more beautiful than you could have ever dreamed up. But before you stand, when you stand before you can't see it, that's the thing, that's what faith is. And so we keep trying to create all of these things on our own. And so this process of Lent that I want to remind us of, because it reminded me of it again this week, is that it just simply starts in the simplest of biblical instructions. Self-denial. Peter, you do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. Peter, you're thinking about self-preservation right now and not self-sacrifice. Peter, you're thinking about your reputation right now and not my glory. Peter, you can't see past this moment of suffering and struggle to see the glory that is built for eternity. You can't see it. And it's amazing to me what God challenges him in in that moment. That this isn't just a little bit of like a, a, a slightly opposition oh, position to take in, in terms of the work that Christ wants to accomplish in our lives. Jesus actually says to him, get behind me, Satan. Because it is demonic to want our own empires and not the kingdom of God. That every movement we take to fulfill the needs in our life or the desires in our life with our own pursuits, rather than the ones that he wants to give us, will only ever take us further away from God and not closer to him, despite our best efforts or our best wishes. Can we come to terms with how strong that wording really is? Peter, you don't have in mind the things of God, but merely human concerns. And Peter, let's be honest, that's the opposite of what's going to get us to where we really need to go today. Some of us in this Lenten season need to lay those things back again before the cross and ask God, what do you want to say to me? about the things in my life that are built around human concerns, my concerns and not yours. The Holy Spirit that we prayed about this morning, what does he go like that to you on when you read that verse? When that truth stands in front of us, convicting us again, You see, most of us want to go through every day believing that's not the case or that's not us. We want to believe that we're better people than we are. We want to believe through our own desire to be full of pride that we're more generous than we really are. We really have more outward-directed lives than we really do. And this happens probably on the two most dangerous fronts in our entire life, both more broadly in culture and also in our experience of church. We don't live very other-directed lives. We don't live very self-denying lives. Let's be honest with ourselves. Since 2009, the Kaiser Family Foundation has conducted nationwide polling asking Americans if they know what percentage of the U.S. federal budget is spent each year on international aid. The average American thought the answer was 26%. The average American thought that 26% of all of our federal spending went out to bless and to help others. The real answer is it's actually less than 1%. wake up every day deluding ourselves into thinking that we're actually better people than we are? That we need a Savior less than we really do? That's just one perception of how we see ourselves politically, internationally. How about in terms of the generosity? Like, for those who have received much, much is expected. For those who have been given great abundance. For those who are trying to live their way into the parable of the talents day in and day out. Professing Christians in America give 2.3% of their income to church. From the wealthiest culture, the wealthiest nation of people who ever lived on this planet, between one-third and one-half of church members report giving nothing at all to the church. Why? I mean, are we, are we as self-absorbed as that says? Christianity Today also says that churches actually plan their annual budget assuming $20 of giving per week per attendee. Think of all the things that all those people, that all of us spend our resources on. Where your treasure is there, your heart will be also. And we wonder why the church isn't growing. We wonder why there's four new ex-Christians this year in America for every one new convert. You see, if we learn to give things away, if we learn to have an other-directed heart, if we learn in the disciplines of focusing on others, of being in service to others, it starts to change and pull us outside of this constant vacuum that will always be there. Friends, we will always need these disciplines in our lives pulling us into the lives of other people because we will always face this pressure of tunneling in on ourselves. The church's greatest skill is navel-gazing. And it's supposed to be looking outward. But we will only uh, ever have an outward-facing church if we have outward-facing people. Could you align your life to become more excited about the blessing of somebody else than ourselves? What would happen as a church if we would do that? Like if every one of us woke up tomorrow more excited about the blessing in somebody else's life than in our own... And what if at the end of the day, we were actually wired to experience greater joy through that? I just wonder if the anxiety levels in our country would drop. If our worries, our concerns, our stresses would start to go away because we were more excited about the gospel going out than in wealth coming in. Augustine reminded reminded us of it like this. That bread which you keep belongs to the hungry. That coat which you preserve in your wardrobe to the naked, those shoes which are rotting in your possession to the shoeless, that gold which you have hidden in the ground to the needy, wherefore as often as you are able to help others and refuse, so often did you do them wrong. You see, here's one of the greatest tricks I think we play on ourselves. We don't remind ourselves of all the, time of all the things we're not doing. One of the most convicting sermons I've heard this past year, listened to this past week by a preacher named Erwin McManus, and he was on the parable of the talents. And he talked about how the master comes back, and the one who buried his talents in the ground and didn't actually use them for an advancement of, of this kingdom that he was a part of, for the one who had entrusted him with this gift. That the response of the master who comes back is, you wicked and lazy servant, I would love to believe that the things that I leave undone in this world on behalf of Jesus Christ were just undone. The parable of the talents reminds me that that itself is wickedness. It is laziness. That is convicting. I was so convicted by hearing that. I want to believe that's just one more thing that somebody else could have done. I've even told myself before I'm empowering others by not doing that because that creates an opportunity for them to do it. How twisted is that? We'll come up with every excuse in the book. I'm really good at them if you're short of them yourself. I'll help you out. We tell ourselves stuff like this. This is why we're told to practice this daily, this cruciform living. Take up your cross. Learn to live in that space. Can we believe that when Jesus teaches us this, it's actually for our own fulfillment? That it'll actually bring us closer to life. This really is still the center of our story. We know that, right? To have in mind the things of God and not the things of men means that God put this at the center of His story. Will we put this at the center of our story and of our desires and of everything we're chasing after? Thomas de says it like this, There will always be many who love Christ's heavenly kingdom, but few who will bear His cross. Jesus said, Many who desire consolation, but few who care for adversity. He finds many to share his table, but few who will join him in fasting. Many are eager to be happy with him. Few wish to suffer anything for him. Many will follow him as far as the breaking of bread, but few will remain to drink from his passion. Many are awed by his miracles. Few accept the shame of his cross. How do you and I feel when we hear that? What do you hear when you hear that? Are we denying ourselves, taking up our cross, following him? What does it really mean then to follow him? I think it means to get excited about all the same things that Jesus was excited about. As the Father has sent me, I am sending you. That means patterning a life after Jesus being excited about all the same things that he was excited about. Remember when he closed at the end and he sent everybody out in the great commission? The great commission is really built on this understanding, like do we really get everything that God has done for us? Cuz if we have, then it's just simply too good not to share. And if we don't share it, then we have to ask ourselves the question, did we really get it in the first place in its entirety? Do we understand really what we've all received? And I think that's what also Lent is for, the reminder of again and again, I have received in such great abundance that I cannot help but join God in what He's doing. As the Father has sent me, I am sending you. As the Father sent Jesus, He is sending me. And so just really quickly, I want to finish with this. Missions given by American Christians, according to the U.S. Center for World Missions, 5% of Christian giving in America goes towards foreign missions, 5.7% to direct answer to the Great Commission. Now, of that 5.7%, 87% of that money goes to work being done among those who are already Christian. 12% of that money goes to work being done around those already who've been evangelized and enfolded. And 1% of all money of the 5.7% given to Christian foreign missions is given toward evangelizing the unreached. So this really wasn't supposed to be handed to us as the minor annoyance. This was supposed to be the Great Commission, right? At the end of the day, Americans spend more money each year on chewing gum than on foreign missions. Guys, we are more excited about dentine than we are about foreign missions, right? I mean, can we really read that any other way? But now let's go back to the beginning of what we started with. Embedded in all of this is an opportunity. When we're confronted with what it is that has been left undone, presents us with the possibility of all what is yet to be done. The great gift of your mind and the great gift of your life, the great gift of your resources, the great gift of the specific talents and opportunities and places that you've been given, and all of these are supposed to be offered back to God. Our uh, life is an answer to the Great Commission. Our life is an answer to denying ourselves, taking up our cross, and following Him. That is the call of the Lenten season. That is the movement towards cruciform living. That is the invitation to life that only God and all of his infinite wisdom could offer us when the world is promising us that fulfillment will come in any every other way possible than that. But this is the answer. And so the cross confronts us again and again with that challenge in our own life. Do we believe that? Are we moving towards that? Or are we moving, honestly, more away from that? Kyle Eidelman wrote a book a few years back called Not a Fan. But he wasn't the first one to come up with this idea. Soren Kierkegaard spoke about the difference between an admirer and a follower a long time before. And we'll close with this as our challenge and kind of as a parting prayer. It is well known that Christ consistently used the expression follower. He never asks for admirers, worshipers, or adherents. No, he calls disciples. It is not adherents of a teaching, but followers of a life Christ is looking for. His whole life on earth, from beginning to end, was destined solely to have followers and to make admirers impossible. Christ came into the world with a purpose of saving, not instructing it. Will you please rise and receive a parting blessing. Image bearers of the great God bought at an incredible price. That which has been given to us has been given to us to share. May your life be an offering in that direction. May your life celebrate the goodness of others and of the God who gave them and everything to us. Go in peace this Lenten season to love and to serve God and our neighbor. Amen.